person of Jesus Christ should be the central focus of our entire life. You might remember me saying that. Certainly, if Jesus Christ is to be the central focus of our entire life, then when we come together, like this morning, that certainly is included in that time. The other thing that I said is that we should expect Jesus to be present in our gatherings in a way that makes a difference. This is Nita Erlene, and you are listening to the TRC Ministries podcast. If you are just joining us, this is part six in our series, Commissional Church. Today, Tori takes a closer look at what it means to gather in the name of Jesus. We can expect that Jesus will work through us, his church, to carry out his will when we gather in his name. And when we operate under his authority, by his power, in unity, the church will be built up. Here is Tori Bjorkland, president of TRC Ministries, teaching at Caravan Fellowship. I would like to start out with us reading several verses. Let me just say, do you ever notice that the Bible is not a bullet list or an outline? We had to add the outlines. They added outlines. You know, people like Ryrie has an outline of every book in front of it. And, that, and that's helpful. I could just tell you what my main week could be done really quickly. But there's several things that, several reasons why I don't think that's such a good idea. And one is that there's a lot of questions about what I might mean by that statement. And the other thing is, maybe there aren't questions, but you think you know what I mean by that statement, but you might not realize what I actually do mean. Also, and I think about Jesus when he was talking to the Pharisees and he said, you, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin. You remember that? But you neglect what? The weightier provisions of the law or the weightier, the things of more importance. And then the things that he listed aren't behaviors but attitudes. Did you notice that? They have behaviors behind them. They're, they're carried out with behaviors, but they're attitudes, faithfulness, justice, and mercy. And these are things that are, that are abstract. You can't say, what is faithfulness? Well, I can tell you what faithfulness in a particular circumstance is. A person can figure that out, right? But it's the concept that's really important. And, and Jesus knew that because he's, that he knew that cleaning the inside of the cup, which is what? Is it? Well, yeah, but what's the inside of the cup? Okay, the heart. And, and what is, and, and basically, what do we mean by the heart? Beliefs. Attitudes, beliefs, the way we think, the way we view other people, the way we view the world around us, the way we view ourselves, the way we view God. This is the way that we think about things. If you clean the inside of the cup, then the outside will all take care of itself. What is the outside of the cup? Behavior, actions, the things that we do. And so we can make statements and we can tell people what to do, but if we don't affect the way that we think, the overall impact, we may or may not see right behavior, but we won't necessarily have insides of our cups. So one of the things that I really want to do is when I try to present something is to really help you understand what I believe the Bible is teaching in how we should think, the way that we should look at things, the perspective we should have and the attitudes that we should have. Also, I want to make sure to get to how does that carry out in practical reality. And so 
if not next week, but the following week, we'll get into the activities of the church, the actual, what, what should we be involved in doing? But the reason I've taken this long to cover everything, and the reason why I want to sort of explain what I mean by the statements that I make, is so that we can be on the same page. Either you can agree with me or disagree with me. You can present a different way of thinking if you want. I might not have it correct. At least you know what I believe the Bible is teaching us in how we should think. And then that gives you the opportunity to either correct me or agree with it. All right, let's get to some verses. Somebody take John 14, 12 through 15. Somebody take Colossians 3, 17 for me. Okay, somebody take John 15, 16 and 17. Somebody take Matthew 18, 19 and 20. Somebody take 1 Corinthians 5, 3 through 5. Did I skip one? John 16. Somebody take that, please. All right, so let's take a look at John 14, 12 through 15. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. Colossians 3.17 And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. John 15.16 and 17 You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Okay, John 16, 23 through 24. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Matthew 18, 19 and 20. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. So, last week we talked a little bit about the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to do the will of the Father on earth, just as it's being done in heaven, that is to extend the kingdom of God. And it relates to the mission of Jesus as in the fact that that was Jesus' mission when he was here on earth. And so we, as his body, are continuing to carry out the mission of Jesus Christ here on earth which is to do the will of Jesus, which is to do the will of the Father. This week, I want to, and, and by the way, I put that under the category of authority. He was acting on behalf of the Father. He had been commissioned by God the Father to do certain things. And we as the church have now been commissioned under the authority of Jesus Christ now to do certain things. Okay? And so today I want to wrap up the concept of authority I haven't defined authority or anything like that, so I shouldn't say the concept of authority. I want to wrap up the idea of authority in the church. And so here's the two points that I want to make under the topic of authority today. Number one, Jesus is in our midst, acting together with us. That is to say, in a different way, we are together with Jesus, in his power, with his authority, on his behalf, to build his church. The second thing is that when we gather or we ask, 
as we were just reading about, in the name of Jesus, we are operating on his behalf. We are operating with his resources, in his authority, with his authority. So this is similar to a power of attorney. I happen to have power of attorney for my parents, for my dad and my stepmom. And I operate on their behalf. I can take money out of their bank accounts. I can, I could buy property in their name. I could do all kinds of things. I have carte blanche power of attorney. So with this power of attorney, I am expected to operate with the intent to do what my father and stepmother would do if they were here to do it themselves. That's what power of attorney is about. So we read these verses. What's the common thread that you saw? Why did I choose these verses? Doing things in the name of Jesus. What does it mean? I kind of already gave you the answer, right? But what does it mean to do things in the name of Jesus? And I'll, I'll say that's rhetorical. Um, we'll maybe get a chance to interact on this in just a second. But I want to share with you, it's interesting to me. I grew up when I was in my home saying in the name of Jesus at the end of every prayer. I didn't think that was strange. That was common. That's what we did. And when I read these verses, when I would come across them as a child, that's what I thought it meant. And I went to a Bible study before I was married, but I was here in Alexandria at the Cornerstone. Some of you might remember the Cornerstone. I went to the Bible study there, and I was visiting with the lady, and as we came into the doors into the cornerstone to have this Bible study, she said, in the name of Jesus. And I, it was sort of took me aback because we, we were having a conversation which she interrupted to say, in the name of Jesus. And then when it came time to read the Bible, just like we did, where, you know, there were some verses we were going to read out loud, and somebody asked her, would you read this? She said, in the name of Jesus, and then she read the verses. So I asked her about that, and she couldn't quite remember where it came from in the name of Jesus before she read, but she wanted to make sure that we were gathering in the name of Jesus when she came to the Bible study. So I think really what I want to break these two points down into is, remember Jesus said, okay, in Matthew 18 we read, where two or three are gathered in his name, what? There am I in the midst. He's in our midst, okay? So I want to, the first point is really about Jesus being in our midst and what does that mean? And the second point, okay, if Jesus is in our midst when we're in his name, what does it mean to act, operate, to ask in his name? What does it mean in his name? What does that actually, what was he referring to? And we might read a few more verses to actually get a feel for how that phrase is used in other ways, in other places. Okay, so, so one of my assertions in another session is that the person of Jesus Christ should be the central focus of our entire life. You might remember me saying that. Certainly, if Jesus Christ is to be the central focus of our entire life, then when we come together, like this morning, that certainly is included in that time. The other thing that I said is that we should expect Jesus to be present in our gatherings in a way that makes a difference. Now, sometimes I tell Marlene, for example, Marlene isn't here today. And I say, Marlene, when she comes on a Sunday uh, after she's missed, I'll tell her, I'm happy to see you. I'm glad that you came. We missed you last week. And often her response will be something to the effect that she doesn't really contribute much when she is here. I think she does. 
each one of us actually contributes in a way. And we notice when people are gone. How much more so would we expect Jesus to contribute in a way that is noticeable if he is in our midst? And so that's why I say that we should expect Jesus to be present if we believed what he said. We should expect him to be present in a way that makes a difference. In other words, why would he bother to be in our midst if he didn't actually expect that to make a difference? So in what way would it not be the same if he were not in our midst? It's another way of saying it. It would not be the same if he were not in our midst. So Matthew 18, 20, I want you to notice something here. I didn't have you read in front of that, but is anybody familiar with what Jesus was talking about at that point in Matthew 18, chapter 18, verses 19 and 20? The context, you say, is church discipline, is the, is the phrase that you used. And so, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, if you become aware of somebody acting in a sinful manner, you go to them and you try to, to talk with them, right? That's what, that's what the context of this is. And it escalates over a process if they don't repent, if they don't decide to change what they're doing. Okay, so that's the context of this. And he, winds that part of it up saying, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. What does that have to do with the discipline? Let me answer that for you by having us read 1 Corinthians from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, does anybody, before we turn there, anybody know the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Now, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. What's the context? There was scandalous behavior. The common understanding, as I've read it, is that somebody was having sexual relations with their stepmother or something like that. It was a marginally incestual relationship with a married woman who is married to his father. And that's, that's the situation. And Paul says, you guys are proud of the fact that you accept somebody who is engaged in this behavior, and that should not be the case. And so, 1 Corinthians 5, 3-5. through 5. Let's read that together. Paul said, For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled... And I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Now, Paul here, I believe, is just simply following the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 18. He's doing exactly what Jesus said ought to be done. And I therefore... I'm also believing that the way Paul knows about it is because this has, has already gone through a process of discussion. It's public knowledge. Now, by the way, this isn't the end of the story. Probably you know the end of the story. Well, you know later in the story anyway. And that is, I, I didn't bother to get the, pa the passage for that. That's in 2 Corinthians. Paul is writing back to them about this situation. And this man had repented. 
at that point. And Paul said, don't, don't hold him off any longer. And embrace him. Bring him back into fellowship here. And the first and primary thing was to fulfill the will of God, which is to recover this man. You understand, this. now sometimes people refer to this as excommunication. I don't believe that this was excommunication. By the way, if we said that, that would mean that they should never speak with Gentiles. They should never speak with anybody outside of the church because that's what Jesus said in Matthew 18. Let them be as that. What is that? It's not animosity. It's not arm's length or standoffishness that this is not somebody who is in unity and fellowship and harmony with us doesn't mean that we have animosity towards a person with that. But it's a consideration of where this person stands in relation to us and in relation to God, which is out of harmony, out of unity. Jesus, I think, was saying, love this person in the same way you would love somebody else. Certainly, if you love your enemies, this person is not necessarily acting as your enemy, but he's acting as a person who is caught in sin. And by the way, Paul talks about this also in other places where he says, if, if a person is caught in sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. But looking to yourself, and looking to yourself in what way, by the way? In the way that Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye. This should not be taken on as a matter of arrogance or a matter even of animosity. So that's why I say excommunication is not the right phrase. It's not the execution of Matthew 18. The point here is to recover this person, which is exactly why Jesus came to this earth. It is a continuing carrying out of the mission of Jesus Christ on this earth. Okay, so the thing that I wanted to, I also wanted to point out here though, is that Paul is saying that this is the behavior that can be done because of the authority of Jesus Christ and through the power of Jesus Christ. What is involved? Do you remember what he said? I have decided to what? Paul said, even though I'm absent of the Spirit, I've already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you, in the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one. What does that like mean? It, it sounds like a curse. Yeah, it does. Now, continue on, by the way, for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So, so Paul was trying to act very purposeful here. And here's what I think that he's saying is that there is in the body of Christ a protection of effect of Satan on the individual that does not otherwise exist for people that are on their own. There is a one anotherness that is intended for building up, for strengthening, for encouraging. By the way, um, this is why the root of bitterness should not enter in, is because we call ourselves caravan fellowship. There's this protection in one anotherness that is removed when we're on our own. I don't mean when we're not gathered in the same room. I mean when we are not in fellowship and operating in harmony and fellowship with one another. And so I believe that what he was talking about is that this man who was acting in this way was no longer under the protection of the body of Christ and therefore subject to things which, by the way, happened 
for example, to Job. Now, Job was in a different situation. It wasn't because of his sin. But you remember, Satan had to ask God to remove his protection from Job. And what was happening here, I believe, is that Paul was in the name of Jesus, by the power operating as the proxy for Jesus, removing, asking God to remove his protection and the protection of the body from this man. But realize this man was a child of God. And so the point of this was that his soul would be saved. And so Paul said, what? The destruction of his flesh. What he was saying is, and this is another part of community, is that when you see somebody who is suffering in the community of the church, what's your should be our natural response to go to their aid, to provide for their needs and other things. When this man is handed over, even those areas of provision and protection and sharing and so forth are actually removed. And so the full impact of the effect of being outside the will of God is allowed to occur in this man's life. This is a thorny, thorny issue. It's been abused and it's been ignored. And I think we do a disservice to ourselves, each other, and the word of God if we do either one. Ah, who has the authority? Who has this authority? Now, Paul, if you notice, he expressed it as if he had all confidence that he had authority to do that, right? I myself, but what did he say to them? He said, this should not be, okay? And he was taking steps that they didn't take but should have already taken is the way that I understand Paul. He doesn't explicitly say it that way, so I, I want to be clear. That's my interpretation of reading between the lines here. So he says, it's actually reported that there's immorality among you, and immorality of a such that such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. What I'm way I read that is, this is how you behaved rather than how you should have behaved. You became arrogant, proud of this situation when what you should have done is remove the person from your midst. So, first of all, it doesn't take an apostle to do it. Okay? That's, that's the first thing we can take away from this, I think. It's a collective authority and not an individual authority. And our concept of leadership in the church, I think, is the hierarchical leadership of the church is wrong. And this is why, by the way, when, when Paul wrote to them about teaching and about prophecy, he said, let somebody, you know, one, two, three people at the most speak and let the others judge. Because the authority is given to the church, not to the individual. And so the authority actually belongs to the unity of the church. And there are roles that people play. And with those roles comes some responsibility. But guess what? With those roles also comes responsibility to those who are not in those roles to judge and to obey if the judgment is that this is from God. And so carrying this out is not the responsibility of an individual or a group of leadership individuals because in my view, it's really the group as a whole and the group as a whole can delegate to people to, you know, talk it over, to come up with some plan and to put it before us, but it's not individual hierarchical leadership that is the biblical model.
I do want to make this clear. These teachings were not to the people that met at Priscilla's. If you look at the end of 1 Corinthians, it's like, greet the people that meet here. And, you know, and they're different throughout the Bible. There's, there's greetings to these individual places of meeting. Who's this written to? The church in Corinth. In my understanding, as I read this, as I read all of the epistles, for that matter, that were not specifically addressed to individuals, they were addressed to, would be in our case, the church in Alexandria. And the intent is for us to operating in unity with our other brothers and sisters. Now, many times we won't know about the specific incidences, and they might be handled by the specific groups that meet in so-and-so's home or groups that meet at so-and-so building. But the real biblical teaching, I think, is that this affects every that meets as believers and not just an individual one. That's a very difficult thing for us because of our thinking, and I think our thinking is wrong. And in today's Christian society, it's very difficult for us to actually practically work that out. And we may only be limited to being able to work that out within the local congregation, but I don't believe that's what Paul had in mind, nor Jesus in Matthew 18. And and so the boundaries, in my opinion, are not as easily defined as people would like to say this is only the local congregation. No, it's not. That's not what was happening. Does it only apply to the entire city of New York or whatever? Well, I think that the intent here is fairly obvious based on the historical record and what he's saying, you know, is and who it's addressed to, here's, to me, the intent. And this goes back to being part of the name. Part of operating in the name of Jesus Christ is being associated with the name of Jesus. And if one group that has people that are operating in a way that puts a black mark on the name of Jesus Christ, it affects everybody that is operating in the name of Jesus Christ. And it needs to be addressed. When we find out about believers outside of our immediate group, and let's say I find out, just personally find out about something that's happening with, you know, somebody, a good friend of mine, maybe, that is, you know, say a pastor at another church. My role is go to, to go to that person individually, just like Jesus taught, and to do it individually because this come to my attention. And to begin that process of recovery, whether they're part of my local congregation or not. Because that's the intent here. So, Matthew 18, who can operate under Matthew 18? Everybody that is in the body of Christ. Who do you bring as witnesses when you have to add more people? Well, there it starts getting a little bit, you need to start exercising some wisdom, right? I mean, if you are made aware of somebody else's sin, the right thing to do is to go and talk to them about it. It's the natural thing to do. And not go tell anybody else about it. So who can do that? The people that come aware of it. The question then is, okay, when it escalates, who's going to make the decision that, okay, we need to take these steps? And I think Paul's answer to that was, I don't care, it should have been done by now. <laughs> you know, So I'm going to. And it shouldn't have had to come to me to do that. And that's the gist of it. And so... We need to figure that out amongst ourselves. And I think that would be part of the process of Matthew 18, right? You would say, well, gee, who should I get involved, you know? Well, Jason would be a natural person to get involved in your case. 
And then you guys might talk about it and pray about it, and maybe you go and get Dave and Gene. At that point, as it begins to work through the process, we have to depend upon the Holy Spirit in us and the presence of Jesus Christ in the midst of those witnesses to determine how to take those next steps. And that goes back to my issue of that it actually makes a difference. We should not be acting as if we've got it figured out. And this is the problem with the formulaic view of things, by the way. We don't need Jesus because we've got the Bible. We don't need the Holy Spirit because we've got the Word of God. Nobody would actually say that, but we behave at times as if that's true. How about we pause and we say, okay, here's a situation, and we know what the Scripture says, but let's figure out what it actually means then in a specific situation to be obedient to what the Scripture says by asking the Spirit of God to conduct His business in our heart to help us carry out the will of Jesus Christ together as those two or three witnesses, and then the next step, together as the entire church. By the way, if Jesus is actually in our midst and functioning, is operating as himself, who has the authority? He does. He does. And we should be trying to operate in such a way that we're recognizing first and foremost the authority of Jesus Christ and trying to figure out what that means in our midst. That might mean that I take a back seat and somebody else steps up. That might mean that it might not be carried out in the way that the corporate world would do that with a top-down or the Gentiles, as Jesus talked about. You know how the Gentiles lead? They lord it over each other. This is a thorny issue, and I think we, we need to be clear. We can't ignore it, and we can't abuse it. We only touch one part of it. It's so much bigger than just discipline. It's huge. So let me make a statement here. You remember Jesus said, "On, Okay, thou art Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And my assertion is that it's actually Jesus who is building the church. We are acting as his agents, as his proxies, with power of attorney, operating in the power of his presence, in a community of believers who through, I want to get make this clear, who through interaction and experience accomplish the building up of the body of Christ. So, it is Christ who is doing the building, but it is we who are working with him through our interactions and our experiences to build up the body of Christ. Thanks for listening in today. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And for more information on TRC Ministries or to contact us, go to www.regenerationcenter.org.